Welcome to the Baptist Research Podcast, exploring Baptist research and history for the sake of the church in Aotearoa today. The New Zealand Baptist Research and Historical Society is interested in research about Baptists and supporting Baptists who are researching. At its core, we're a network of different people across the Baptist movement invested in the preservation of our history, supporting those involved in research, and connecting these worlds to serve local church ministry and mission practice. Part of our mission is to platform people within the wider Baptist family who've devoted themselves to research and to share this research in different settings. The Southern Lecture is one such setting with a rich legacy of stimulating research that prophetically serves the church. The lecture was named after Martin Sutherland, an important Pakia Baptist theologian and historian whose contributions to Baptist research and history are many. This year, we were lucky enough to hear from three different contributions to the lecture, which was hosted and emceed by Baptist Research board member Caleb Hodua. In the following recording, Caleb will introduce each of these three contributors, Laura, Rawadi and Sarah, and explain a bit more about the shape of the lecture. This recording includes all three contributions to the overall lecture in one go, including a Q&A panel which was held at the end of the event. In coming weeks, we will also share each individual contribution on its own. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce the Baptist Research Southern Lecture for 2022. Kia ora. My name is Caleb and I am uh, a board member of Baptist Research uh, and many other things. Um, I have the privilege of being uh, the MC for this morning, so hi. Uh, you may see also on your uh, tables, there's a little card there. Put that in your bag now, you won't forget it, and uh, you can reference it later. Uh, so this year's theme is telling stories. I've been told I'm pretty good at this. It's a theme that strikes at the heart of what it means to be human. From time immemorial, stories have been the vehicle by which we have seen our origins, made sense of the earth, sky and waters, imagined, described, retold, and passed on knowledge and wisdom. As Christians, we peculiar people have a peculiar story, don't we? And within that grand story are many, many stories. Stories that depict God, humanity, and creation in relationship. Today we have three guests sharing with us their research and how they explored stories and the components that were biblical, historical, cultural, and theological. These stories shape who we become and who we imagine ourselves to be. They hold for us inspiration, meaning, encouragement, and challenge. When we dig deeper, we ask questions such as, what do these stories mean for faith formation, for relating to each other, for our life together as both local, national and global church and how can we learn to tell better stories that point us towards a more honest faithful and fruitful practice of the christian faith in aotearoa today no doubt today you will be in for a treat uh, just uh, to share with you how we're going to do this we're going to hear from each person uh, and uh, we're going to take questions uh, throughout it 
And if we don't get the chance to ask those questions throughout the, um, this morning, uh, right at the end we'll reserve some time to answer some of those questions. So uh, feel free to text the number on the screen, 021-025-04601, throughout the breakfast. All good. So remember, there's food there. Drink, please, eat, drink, and be merry. And so I would like to introduce our first presenter. Our first presenter, oh, by the way, all three of these people I studied with, which just shows you how long I've been at Kerry. Uh, so, our first presenter is Dr. Laura Skilpore. Laura recently completed a PhD in sociology at the University of Otago. Yeah, come on. And now lives in Wellington, where she teaches a foundations course in partnership with Victoria University. Drawing from in-depth interviews with couples attending Protestant churches in New Zealand, her research explores how couples practice gender equality, and examines the social and religious rationales underpinning their behaviour. Please put your hands together for Laura. Such a nice introduction. Actually, I, might, I might hold my notes. So it's really, really lovely to be here with you this morning. I had to travel all of one minute, 30 seconds across the road, because I'm staying with my folks who live across the street, so it's really great to be here. So kia ora koutou. Thank you again. And um, before I started my doctoral research, I realized that many couples were wanting to be egalitarian, but that there were few resources within Christian circles that addressed this. So what is egalitarianism? Egalitarianism is the position that women and men are of equal intrinsic value before God, and that there are no gender-based limitations on what functions or responsibilities each can fulfill in the home, church, or society. So the theme, as we know, of this gathering is the biblical, cultural, theological narratives we tell ourselves, and how these narratives shape who we are. In light of this, the structure of my talk will focus on the following two points. Number one, some findings from my research about what facilitates gender equality within intimate partnerships like marriages. And number two, some suggestions for ways that churches and church leaders can encourage and equip couples who are wanting to grow in their egalitarianism. But first, a little bit about my study. For my research, I conducted in-depth interviews with heterosexual church-going couples where both partners strongly identify as egalitarian. The participants come from dif different family configurations. Many of them have children, ranging from one to five children. And I analyzed their interviews, drawing from sociology and theology to frame the analysis. As many of you may know, most of the literature on egalitarianism is found in biblical and systematic theological discussions. However, this study focuses on people's lived experiences and their underpinning rationales. So, to my first point, number one. What facilitates equality in partnerships, according to the couples I interviewed? So in a moment, I'm gonna mention some of them, and then I'm gonna focus on three and discuss these in a little more depth. So, the degendering of household labor. The ability for partners to negotiate and be assertive establishing equal power relations, and sharing paid employment and childcare responsibilities. 
The first facilitator that I would like to highlight is one that all of the couples I interviewed felt strongly about. And it is that couples are able to negotiate the sharing of household-related mental labor in a way where both partners perceive it as equitable. So this is often referred to as the mental load. For example, the invisible labor associated with family life, like who delegates the chores or what needs to be bought from the supermarket or all the thinking associated with childcare, etc. Since recent research reveals how mental labor continues to be disproportionately performed by women and by mothers compared to fathers, this is an important area for couples desiring to be egalitarian to focus on. And interestingly, the couples who reported higher levels of satisfaction in this area were those who had male partners actively stepping up to carry more of this invisible labor. The second facilitator I would like to highlight is the theology that is deeply formative for the participants. At the core of their theology is the belief that all humans are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The belief that we are all one in Christ. This shapes their marriages and family lives. All of the participants understand God as being both genderless as, as well as being feminine and masculine. And this directly impacts the way they see their partners and sometimes what they choose to model to their children. They also appeal to the Trinitarian experience where there's three persons working in an equal relationship. The participants adopt an egalitarian, exegetical, and hermeneutical approach to understanding the Bible. Locating biblical texts within the cultural and historical context they were written, challenging a literalist interpretation of scripture. The third facilitator I want to highlight, and one that I personally find is most interesting from the study, and this is for the men, is that men who are embracing a more expanded vision of what it means to be a man. And I'll just, say, I'll just say a point here is that, you know, this topic is not um, about women's issues. Actually, when I first put out the call to couples or recruited couples, it was majority of male partners who reached out to be interviewed. It's easy to forget about the men, isn't it? But, um, okay, so what's the facilitator? It's men who are embracing a more expanded vision of what it means to be a man. This is important because prior research, research tells us that men play an important role in establishing equality within relationships with women. And here is the hopeful narrative for men within the church. Because church and theology provides men the opportunity to experience dimensions of personhood that are broader than the current cultural norms of what it means to be a man. For example, some men talked about expressing aspects of themselves that are more traditionally regarded as feminine, um, allowing them to be more free. Many of the men I interviewed view Jesus as a model of masculinity where power is something to give away and not accumulate. Or don't have the need to be in control of their lives because that's something they can submit to God. Gender equality is good for the kind of lives the men in this study want to live. 
They want to have good relationships with their partners and children as involved and caring partners and fathers. My second and final point is this. How can churches support this important narrative of egalitarianism? In this study, it became clear that it is within churches that men and women can reimagine how they think about gender, equality, and power. And that, there, and that churches are really important for the egalitarian identity formation for men and women. And involvement within these communities is an important way to both facilitate and support couples' relationship egalitarianism. So at the end of each of my interviews, I asked the participants this question. What would you say you need from a church community to make it a healthy, empowering environment in which your convictions about gender and relationships can grow? It's a good question, eh? They said a number of things, including these. Acceptance of different models of family, women's in women in positions of leadership, the use of inclusive language for God, and some female participants desire to feel confident and supported in their multiple identities as a parent, full-time employee, and a churchgoer. Ultimately, this research proposes that egalitarianism is an effective and fulfilling narrative for Christian relationships. My hope is that Christian communities can embrace this egalitarian narrative more intentionally. So, is there room in your church setting for this narrative to be explored? And what might that look like? Thank you for listening. Thank you for that. Uh, Laura, you're not finished yet. Um, I've got one more question to ask for you. So just a reminder, you can text through questions to be asked at the end. Uh, we've already had someone do that. Well done, you get a gold star. Uh, so Laura, uh, what, so you told us that there are helpful stories, right, and narratives. What are uh, unhelpful stories or narratives that we often hold? Uh, the kind of stories that shape patterns of relationship in the church. That's mm. my question for you. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so it's easy for us, I, I'm sure you would all agree, it's easy for us to unconsciously inherit and reproduce patriarchal norms of the past. Especially within evangelical Christian spaces where gender relations have traditionally been organized by the complementarian principles of hierarchy and female submission. Thus, in light of this important historical context that Baptist churches and other churches come from, it's important that to have egalitarian relationships, we must challenge the status quo. And I think there's different practical ways that can happen. For example, churches could do this through a designated discussion evening, um, maybe more intentionality around pre-marriage counseling. Um, and on this note, I actually am going to create a, a little resource, that's, and the intention is for it to be super practical, um, emerging from the study. And um, 
that it's something that someone like a church leader could reach for to help initiate some of these conversations about egalitarianism, what does it mean for people practically? And so, if you would be interested in keeping up to date or wanting that resource one day, um, I'm gonna work with Christians for Biblical Equality to get it published. So if, you, um, what, if you're interested in that, I have some paper and a pen here. If you wanna put down your email address and I'll just keep you in the loop of its creation. That might be a little while, but um, anyway. Okay, so thank awesome. you. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Everyone give a round of applause again for our first meeting. So uh, this, our second uh, contributor for this morning is a good friend of mine, someone who I uh, did my master's alongside. Well, I distracted them as they try to do this. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, so... Uh, our second presenter is uh, Rawuri Oti. Rawuri is currently Po Arahi Whānau Services uh, at Vision West Waka Whakakitenga and holds a Master's of Applied Theology from Kerry Graduate School. His presentation will engage with a number of historical interactions between New Zealand Baptists and Te Ao Māori to explore how similar issues are expressed in different generations. His own research seeks to provide historical snapshots they capture the ways in which colonization often play out in the present in order to reflect on how we might address these ongoing legacies today. Uh, put your hands together for Rawi. Toakera ki runga o titirangi maunga Whakararo te titiro ki ngā raparaparangia Hua taku whenua tipu Te wai o uawa e tere ake rā Ure koa ke ki te poho o tamate rangi ki ana kōrero He ao te rangi kā uhia te mā te huruhuru, te manu kārere ai. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, kia ora tātou katoa. Ko tite rangi te maunga, ko waio te awa, ko rangi āhua te whenua, ko tamate rangi te tipuna. Tihei mauri ora. Teia te maiahua. This is a, a beautiful name in my, in my whānau, Teia Tamayahua. Teia was the grandmother of my grandfather. She raised my grandfather, um, whom I spent many, many years with in my first 25 years of life. Teia grew up in a very different world. She grew up on the shores of Lake Waikaremoana through the 1860s and 1870s. She was steeped in te ao Māori. Te reo Māori was her, her reo, her language. Tikanga Māori, mātauranga Māori were her norm. By 1882, she had married a, a Pākehā military man and had a one-year-old child. She could not imagine the change that would happen in the four to five generations since her life, the loss of language, the loss of identity, the loss of things from te ao Māori that would come. In that same year, 1882, if you were at the, uh, the presentation last night, 
Arotahi um, presented and, and, and told us that 1882 was the year that the Baptist Union of New Zealand was established. They also shared about a little bit about the first mission that was established um, for Māori that happened in 1882. In fact, it was a united mission, although based from Auckland Baptist Church, it was a united mission contributed to by nearly every church of that fledgling union. It was a, a mission based in a place called Te Wairoa, uh, at the, the gateway to the pink and white terraces near Rotorua, amongst the two Haurangi people. A, a hopeful mission that could have resulted in beautiful relationship. I'll say that it was a partnership, but it wasn't a partnership between Māori and, and Baptists. It was a partnership between a wealthy American evangelist, lovely guy by the sounds of it, named William Snow, and the Auckland Baptist Church. So we heard last night how that mission had been funded by a mission box drive. Um, we all know these mission boxes, don't we? These, these, this way of fundraising, the very first time that was used, an innovative new way of fundraising was for Māori mission. So when, in 1885, this mission fell over because the missioner didn't have relationship with Māori, couldn't um, really, you know, couldn't really stand to be with Māori. <laughs> Instead of reallocating those funds into the ongoing relationship with the two Haurangi people, they were redirected in other directions. I, I just want you to notice a pattern here, which is going to come up in each of the little corridor that I speak, that there was like a pole laid in the ground New Zealand Baptists said, we want to do something, a mission to Māori. There was like a stake in the ground, a po standing there. There was resource allocated. I mean, they brought the guy over from England, for goodness sake, to do this work. But once that resource was withdrawn, that was the end of mission. That was the end of relationship between Baptists and the two Haurangi people. This action ultimately resulted in 70 years when New Zealand Baptists were basically without any significant relationship with Māori. 70 years. So let's fast forward 70 years <laughs> to 1954. You know, it was a time less than a decade after the Second World War where people had returned from war. People like my grandfather, who was a major in the Māori battalion, when they were overseas, they were respected amongst the, uh, their enemy. They were described by General Rommel as the bravest of warriors. But when they came home, they weren't given the opportunity to own land in the same way that their Pākehā counterparts had. And the roots of that actually stem into part of the housing crisis for Māori today. Baptists in 1954 were finally ready to try again. <laughs> Let's see if we can relate to Māori in some significant way. And this happened in the lower Waikato amongst the Tainui people. 
You'll, you'll know some of the names, Joan Milner, Diaz Jones, these pioneering, beautiful Pākehā people who gave their lives, literally gave their lives and all that they had to reaching out to Māori. They created spaces like Huyamai, which was in Tuako, this place where Māori, over the road from the Marae, where Māori could come and be Māori in a Christian context. What an idea. Relationship built. And so you see again, a pole was laid in the ground at the assembly of 1954. Laid in the ground, we are going to be in relationship with Māori. Resources were given, awesome people, Joan Milner, Des Jones and other, others that followed. And that work led to decades of effective mission, effective work and relationship with the Tainui people of Lower Waikato. Move forward to the 1990s, um, and that work in the Lower Waikato had, had kind of waned, it kind of just sort of not refed itself too well. And so a, a new leader came, um, actually the late 80s, but in, into the 90s, Lionel Stewart came with a real ministry of reconciliation. Many of you will remember Lionel's catch cry, Kia kotahitanga. We are one people together, yeah? He had a beautiful ministry. And as part of that, in the mid-90s, there was an attempt to stand up a Māori um, training facility. Right about the same time that um, the Baptist Theological College was being sold in Victoria Avenue. Imagine, with this po of a Māori training facility, imagine if there had been some resourcing <laughs> to allow for that to flourish and thrive. Well, there was a little bit, not from the sale of Victoria um, <coughs> Avenue, <laughs> but Te Whare Amorangi was born, and that for about a, around about a decade had some effectiveness in being able to um, build Māori leadership, to train Māori in ministry and in, and in many other ways increased educational outcomes for Māori. It was pretty cool. Until 2004, where a decision was made by the Kerry College Board that meant that the program could no longer continue, despite it being very successful. A po had been laid in, in the, the idea of a Māori training facility, resources had been sparingly given and then withheld completely. And it led to the shutdown of that um, beautiful work. There's a positive second chapter to it, but I'm not going to go to that one. <laughs> Let me finish with a, a little story about my own context at Vision West Waka Whakakitinga. Um, it's a social service provider for many things. Look it up. It's all good. I won't talk about it too much. But about seven or eight years ago, um, a few people decided it was time to, like, so Māori weren't coming for the work that was being offered, for the support that was being offered by the trust. The statistics said the need was there, but the people weren't coming. And so it was decided to start up a whānau centre. And that whānau centre was designed to be led by Māori from a Māori worldview, but to welcome all. Subsequently, actually, in recent years, that whānau centre has, has sort of grown into something that we now call Huyamai. Funny that, eh? 
after that amazing work in the lower Waikato. Well, who am I when I began there in February last year, February 2021? Had six Māori staff working in that area of, of uh, Māori-informed um, care. It had five. I was the sixth one. There had been a, like, so a few months later, a PO was put in the ground where the board adopted a comprehensive Tatiritia Waitangi policy, one that focused on equity for Māori. Do you know what that did? It unlocked significant resourcing. And there's been a 600% growth in the number of workers that we have in that area. We had five when I came. There are now 30 working in that space. I mean, I'm not naive enough to, to, um, to think that there won't be challenges going ahead. But there seems to me to be quite a simple equation. And people think that this stuff is hard. This stuff is relationship. This stuff is a PO, a commitment, something to say we will do this, and then some resourcing to make it happen. And continuing to, in commitment, enable that resource to remain. It's that simple. The history tells us, the stories tell us, that that's all that's needed for this to thrive. So what are we waiting for? This year, my, my eldest daughter, um, oh man, I'll get emotional talking about my kids. Um, my eldest daughter has just finished her final assignment at a full immersion te reo course, and now is able to call it all Māori. Three generations after that language was lost to my whānau, from Teia to Maiahua, to the whānau that, that, that followed her, my daughter will now, one day perhaps, have mokopuna for me, who can call it all Māori. Uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, kia ora tātou. The mission ended because we didn't have the will to continue in relationship with the Tuharangi people. The eruption happened. <laughs> um, the missioner had already gone. He was on his way to America. He was, he'd left. The Baptist Church in Auckland uh, and the fundraising, which had been muted that it might go half and half to, like um, AJ said last night, to Māori mission and to, and to Indian mission, had already been allocated to the Indian mission. And um, yeah, we did, like a nice thing, if you want a good feel story, when the eruption happened, that dude who was useless amongst Māori, 
he did an amazing emergency um, response. He rode back on his horse. He organised a train to bring blankets and, and supplies for the local people. He did something good in that context, and then he went off to America, where he lived out his life. Um, so, you know, it, it didn't end because of an eruption. It ended because of a lack of will and a lack of resource and the decisions that were made. diversity of voices up here um, and we're continuing that uh, now with our third person okay I was just I noticed they went there so I'm trying to fill time but I don't need to because it's all good so uh, this person again I studied with uh, Sarah uh, Sarah sorry I was going to say Davidson that was that was before you were married Sarah Rice uh, is co-lead pastor at Wellington Central Baptist Church uh, and his wife to Elliot and mother to Charlotte with another girl on the way her research has challenged the conventional development view that Pacific Indigenous entrepreneurs are ineffective and that customary land upon which many of their businesses are based is a barrier to development. The fieldwork showed an alternative view of Pacific Indigenous entrepreneurs, showing they are weaving together strands of reciprocity, communal activities, traditional knowledge systems, and elements of conventional economic practices to enable contextually diverse opportunities for sustainable livelihoods. This research was shaped by the Fijian, Fijian Vanua research framework and an actor-oriented approach, meaning storytelling was the main way data was collected. Please put your together for Sarah. It's so lovely to be with you here today. Um, something I'm finding with this pregnancy is I get short of breath. I'm not nervous. I just um, don't have much space to breathe. Um, <laughs> but it's so good um, to be able to share this research with you. Um, so we all, as Jesus followers, read in scripture a lot about people who are in poverty. And we have ideas about how people get into poverty and how people get out of poverty. And these ideas are theories of economic development. And like any theory, we need to be able to critically analyze them for the sake of who the theory is about. And today I'm sharing some of my own self-reflection that was done through this research. So as part of a Marsden-funded um, project, thank you Marsden Foundation, um, in the Pacific, called The Land Has Eyes and Teeth, 
customary landowners' entanglements with customary systems in the Pacific. Now, in the Pacific, over 80% of land is held in communal ownership. This is when family groups own land, and it's called customary land owners. However, when mainstream Western economic development predominantly views in the literature and in practice and in government policy, indigenous entrepreneurs as ineffective, and that customary land upon which many of their businesses are based is a barrier to their development. So we contested this by focusing on indigenous entrepreneurs who successfully ran um, customary land-based businesses in Samoa, Papua New Guinea, and Fiji. I was assigned a customary land-based restaurant called Hinua, um, and this is how they describe themselves um, to tourists who come, that their customary land-based restaurant that will capture your heart and stomach. It's still true, I dream about their meals. Um, and it mainly serves indigenous Fijian food on the Coral Coast. Um, that's one of their meals, just to whet your appetite. Um, in Fiji, customary land is understand, understood as the vanua. So this is the interconnected relationship of land, spirituality, culture, history and people in Fiji. And this means that personhood comes from seeing oneself as an extension of the land. Now I'm an outsider, I'm doing this research on insider knowledge, so my methodologies were chosen to honour the vanua. The participants' knowledge was shared with me through something that's called talanoa, which is sharing knowledge through cyclical dialogue that incorporates laughter and I learned that that laughter needs to be me as the butt of the joke. Um, <laughs> and song, um, dance, which again made me the butt of the joke, um, food and ceremonies. So today I'll outline why mainstream economic development argues um, customary land as a barrier to development, then how Henua is disrupting that narrative. So in the last two centuries, the mainstream economic development theory has been global modernization, which is capitalism with a neoliberal moral logic. In 1944, the President Truman um, put forward an economic strategy um, for the majority world, and he announced that we have a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. A definition was formed for what makes somebody underdeveloped, and it's those whose economy has not yet reached the level of North America or Western Europe. Um, so really, in a nutshell, what made this palatable and how we still use it today is those who perceive themselves that are ahead help those who they perceive are behind. This created a buzz of activity for Christians and non-Christians alike. The United Nations gathered together some economists who developed a report called the Economic Development of Underdeveloped Countries. This is still widely referenced. Just keep some breath for him. And they argued, there is a sense in which rapid economic progress is impossible without painful adjustments. 
Ancient philosophies have to be scrapped. Old social institutions have to be disinterrogated. Um, Bonds of caste, creed, and race have to burst. And large numbers of persons who cannot keep up with progress have to have the expectations of a comfortable life frustrated. So what they did is they created a blueprint to shape entrepreneurs in underdeveloped countries into progressive entrepreneurs who overcame what they coined traditional hangovers. The word that's now used instead of traditional hangovers is empowerment, um, if you want some development jargon. But, um, so they went from strong con connections to rather individual freedom for achievement. Relies on local economy um, community, which did have global interaction, but instead liberalization. Social obligations to instead saving and investing. Surplus and specialized labor to standardization. Cultural, religious, and traditional briefs to scientific and rational decision-making. And customary tenure to privatization. So Freeman um, later nuanced this as the golden straitjacket. Um, this was based on the Washington Consensus, um, which an entrepreneur needs to put on. For any NGO, so non-government organization, or mission agency in New Zealand to get government funding, they need to demonstrate how they are empowering project participants into the jacket. This is still a prerequisite for aid in New Zealand today. Um, business training in Fiji is based on the golden straitjacket principles, but it does not fit. In Fiji, there's a high rate of failure of indigenous-run businesses. Even though it has received the highest aid per capita in the world, this has resulted in the saying that my participants said and stakeholders I interviewed said of Itoke, which is indigenous Fijians, stand to fall. How then were the entrepreneurs of Henua still standing so tall? The Marsden Project has developed a tool to help identify how successful customary land-based businesses are doing it. What I found is that Henua was culturally embedded. They were utilizing the power of the Vanua to enable their success. So let's look at how they did this. The owners were able to start the restaurant from their customary land. They used culturally embedded knowledge, which enabled them to use the informal economy to sell pigs and fish from their land, which provided cash to start a horse riding business in the formal economy, which then enabled them to save a loan to get a bank from the Fijian um, bank. Then for 10 years, the owners sought to build the restaurant, but policies and business structures favor foreign ownership in Fiji, and so they had many hurdles to overcome. They eventually gained consent, and when it came to starting the restaurant, an uncle gifted some money, relatives helped with the building, and they worked without pay until the restaurant became profitable. The Vonua brought a social protective system around the business during its most vulnerable startup stage. They then embedded the restaurant within the land. They sought to honor the Vanua by setting aside profits from the horse riding business 
to enable gift gifting and contributions to weddings um, and funerals. They also completely fund a local pastor who's planted a church at the restaurant where both local Fijians of Indian and Itoke descent are part of the church. So if you go for breakfast there on Sunday, as a tourist, you're going to be included in a church service. It's <laughs> really great. And who wouldn't want to be a part of it? It's a very fun service. Um, in doing this, they protected the profits from the restaurant to enable growth, but were still meeting social obligations. As a result of this, it created reciprocity, where the wider community benefited from the business, and so were actively invested in seeing it succeed. Finally the, business, um, finally, the benefits are enjoyed by those on the land. Hinua has created an amazing multiplier effect. Unlike foreign-owned resorts, where food is largely imported from places like the Netherlands, so if you're eating at Outrigger, you're eating food probably from the Netherlands, 80% um, of all the food used at Hinua is local Fijian produce, benefiting local agriculture and fishing. They have helped start four other businesses, some financially and some through business advice. And so Hinua is competing with foreign-owned five-star resorts, and their business model is disrupting the conventional development narrative. While I was there, I was there while some business training was happening in the village I was staying at, and this is not what they're teaching. Um, for those who use the, the golden straitjacket, what the literature is finding and what we're finding from this research is they become isolated away from the social predictive systems that help them be sustainable. And so Hinoa still uses some of the golden straitjacket principles, but the object is not individual wealth, but communal well-being. So in conclusion, my research argues that economic development has often failed in Fiji because the cultural environments the programs are introduced into are not fully comprehended. Successful businesses in the Pacific, well, from what this research has found, are often organized around families and kin networks, which in Fiji are formed around the relationships found in the Vanua. Thus, relational economics, based on social embeddedness, needs to be further recognized in economic development implementation. For us as churches, there's many implications, but one of which is when we do missional businesses, our structures can't look like how they do in New Zealand. Otherwise, they're not sustainable and they cannot be locally run. So my conviction is that economics should not be defined by theories of those who perceive themselves as ahead, but instead in terms of its subject matter, which actually economics is really about. And that subject is, is context-specific economics. I've asked my participants what they want me to say at the end of every talk, um, and this is what they said. We chose what is associated with the land, and because of that, we have gone through challenges, and proven that we indigenous Fijians can also thrive in business.
same issues with our own people mm. here. And so um, that's, that's a beautiful model that you've just shown and um, my, my heart is resonated with what you've brought. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Considering that you undertook your research as a cultural insider telling the story, stories of insiders, what structures were in place to keep you accountable as an outsider and what limitations uh, did you have in gathering insider knowledge and also sharing it like you have done? Thank you. Sorry, I was taken so by surprise by that. <laughs> that was really moving. Um, I think it's really important that my positionality is an outsider. And while we were doing this research, there was this big movement happening of saying there's no such thing as an insider or outsider. It's all about mutuality. It's all about being one. Um, and we decided as a research group um, that this wasn't the position we would take. And part of that was because we had structures of indigenous researchers feeding into our research. So I was the only Palangi um, student on this. Everybody else was from um, the island nations that I talked about. Um, I had a cultural advisor um, who's Itoke, um, and I meet with her throughout the research. Um, and she would unpack my assumptions. <laughs> um, and then the research group, we had, again, a stakeholders um, we had a, a, a governance group that we put our findings to who would tell us whether we on track or not. Um, so there was lots of structures around that. Um, another part of that was that um, my participants have been able to change their quotes throughout the research. So it meant I, I wrote this beautiful, what I thought was a beautiful chapter, sent it to one of my participants whose quotes was very central to it, and she said, you're not explaining what I meant. This is what I meant. So she rewrote her quote, and I had to rewrite a chapter in labour. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> so that was that was. But that was the important thing to me with my research is that it's not owned by me; it's owned by my participants. And this went one step further. Um, I was invited to speak at an economic symposium. Now, when you do development studies, this is the the type of conference you want to be invited to. Um, there were people from all over the world to it, and I sent one of my participants to speak instead of me. Um, this is Susie um, telling people why what they believe is economic development is wrong. <laughs> and I'm told, I'm told she did a really excellent job, um, which was really great. And then there's a, another part of being an outsider. Um, my participants gifted me a metaphor to use in my thesis. Um, that metaphor I will only present with somebody who's Fijian who can explain the metaphor. And so I actually have knowledge I can't share, which has been quite humbling because it's really beautiful and um, quite clever, you know, how it all wraps together. Um, but that's, that's not mine to share. And so um, I will often co, if I'm in a development conference, I'll co-present with somebody from the project um, so that's some of the insider knowledge. So there's things even within this talk I've left out purposefully because I'm not the one who can share it. Um, so that's, yeah. Thank you once again, Sarah. So, so, so we now actually have all three of our contributors come up and we are going to do a bit of a, a 
panel type thing. Uh, so please still keep texting through. Um, if you do pledge like 20 bucks to me, your question will probably get asked. Um, oh, probably, definitely. So, awesome. Great. Uh, but to kick us off, uh, I will ask the question. Um, so, you have all used wonderful, challenging stories uh, in, in your research and in talking to us uh, this morning. Um, how is it that we can use stories to challenge, um, I'm going to say the word hierarchies, challenge, because that's what each of you have talked about, is this, this inequality and what does it mean to, to challenge, to change. So, uh, there's my question. Who's the most extroverted? You should get the question first. Probably me. Probably no one. So, it's going to know you first. Come on. Yes, so, um, like, the stories I like are true stories. You know, stories that have happened, you know, things that are actually that, um, you know, where you, you've heard the knowledge and it's been passed on. And I think that um, the importance of story is that um, you can hear the voice of the one telling the story. And so, like, in my research, it was, a, it was about speaking to people who held a knowledge and being able to understand and to, to represent that knowledge in, the, in an authentic and, and, and um, yeah, good way. Uh, you know, there's always an interpretation. There's always a, uh, you know, like a, an, an, like an angle, but trying as hard as is possible. Checking, man, I love your methodology um, that you that you're talking about, um, Sarah, um, to ensure that the story is accurate and 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 real. Um, it's why it's funny when you when you hear some of the things you've researched well, and you hear other people speaking it, and you know that there are elements of what they're saying that aren't right. It kind of grates, you know, like this kind of, and so for me, it's kind of like sort of important that we get it um, accurate. In telling stories, I often feel that there's a story behind the story. Um, so often trying to find out what's the narrative that's actually being said, but is using other language to, to tell. So like with economic development, there's this main narrative, but actually there's a story behind it that's quite different. Um, that we have to get to, and I think it's especially as church leaders, um, we can have multiple stories um, about specific people or about um, specific ideas, but we need to be able to know how to critically analyse the formation of that story that's being told, because often when we can see where it's come from, we find there's another story happening at the same time. Um, so it's kind of being prophetic. Um, and being able to ask God for the insight to see things as they are, not as what we've just been told that they are. Can I have a question on what I was saying? Yeah, so, um, yeah, you've used stories uh, in your research and talking to us now. How is it that you can use uh, stories uh, for, for change? Oh, okay. Challenge. Yeah. Okay, so in the context of my, my um, research, I guess it would be just giving couples platforms to tell their own stories. Um, yeah, or just being brave enough to instigate the conversation with couples of people. Awesome. Um, I have a few pointed questions uh, for people. Uh, I have, no, not pointed, they're just specifically for one person. Um, so I'm going to go to uh, Rawuri. Bro, how can uh, Baptists, you know, with resources, with power, um, how is it that we can do uh, investment? Uh, with Tao Māori, with Māori. How can we do that well when we have that? So, um, 
we have this um, awesome, amazing group called Te and they represent awesome and amazing work that's happening amongst Māori in, in our nation, and um, talk to them. Like, like I, you know, I, do, I think that there's way too much process from conversation to resourcing. If, you, if you've got resource, talk, find out where it needs to go and put it there. Just, just like, it's not that hard. It's, it's how we do, like it's how we do our projects in our churches. Hey, we budget for something and we spend the money. Like, like just, just the money. <laughs> Kia ora no one. Uh, I have... Oh wow, round of applause, ovations. Um, I have a question for uh, Laura. Uh, for those working with young people, um, you know, because what you're talking about, these couples, they have the self-understanding that obviously got there from somewhere. What does it mean for those of us that work particularly with young people to resource and to inform them? How can we do that and do that well? Oh, that's actually a question. Yeah, I didn't ask it, so I <laughs> I think young people are so formative, and I think yes. they're always looking looking for how, how can relationships be done in a healthy, fulfilling way. And, um, yeah, again, I think it would just be like being really deliberate or explicit about the conversations we're having with young people, trying to ask those empowering questions that get at their, un, you know, un, often unconscious assumptions about gender or men or women or um, maybe what they've been modeled from home or what they've seen modeled at church and um, just creating a safe space where young people can really think it through deeply because often if we don't have those explicit conversations, we just sort of default to a more traditional position which in Christianity has historically traditionally been the, the complementary position, right? So if we don't, if we're not intentional with young people, what do you believe, you know, what do you think, or um, what is it that you are wanting out of the relationship? How would you feel really, you know, satisfied in, in a relationship? So I guess, yeah, being just sparking those really intentional, practical, deliberate conversations with young people. And just on that, uh, we had some young people at our church. Uh, we asked them, what's the big question that you have for the church? And they said, tell us what you think about issues. Um, because the world tells us that you're not actually telling us anything. Yeah. Um, we think we are. It was really profound. That mm. challenged us deeply. Thank you. Um, Sarah, I have a question for you. Uh, how can, and, and this is, if you have the answer to this question, Sarah, I'll, I don't know what I'll do. Well, Sarah's research. Sarah, how can Baptists help reverse the harmful impacts of neoliberal logic. <laughs> I think first of all we have to understand it. Um, so sometimes I hear neoliberalism learned, um, used when it's not neoliberalism, it's maybe neoclassical or it's maybe some type of economic, so maybe like some economic literacy is really helpful. There's a really great book um, that I wrote down um, called Economics the User Guide by Han Jun Chen. He's um, one of the leading economists at Cambridge. I think part of it is being able to speak about economics through its subject, not through its philosophical ideas, because um, too much gets mislabeled. Um, so it actually makes the conversation quite hard. Um, and then I think part of it is letting scripture form and shape us um, and understanding that the helped and helper dynamic um, is, is not really spoken about in scripture. So when we look at Acts, we've got um, the gifting of land that happens with um, Barnabas and 
Um, and Barnabas gives land in a way that he becomes one of the beneficiaries. He gives things away for the sake of the community. And because now he's given it away, he needs actually somebody to care for him. And so there's this downward mobility of solidarity um, that I think is really important for us to unpack neoliberalism and for us to understand that progress is actually a Christian word um, that is towards Christ. So our understanding of progress is that our tell us is Christ, our goal is Christ. Our goal is not actually an economy that um, is more powerful than others. Um, and so when we understand what progress is, when we understand what economics is, I find that the conversation changes completely. But if we just label things as neoliberalism, that actually might be a different economic theory. It, it doesn't help us navigate through. I don't know if that makes sense. That's yeah. Amazing. I could listen to you for a whole other couple of hours, Sarah. Um, so it sounds like as, as leaders and Christians, it's good for us to talk about what we know, eh? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, so I just as a, uh, just as a way to end, just it's going to be real quick fire. It starts yeah. with you, Sarah. Um, this research, as I know, as you know, super personal. Um, how has your life changed from doing this? Um, as a church leader, um, my life has been changed through wanting to see the most vulnerable in our society um, have, have responses that are actually meaningful to them and respect their own agency. We don't empower people, people already have power. And our role is to respect the power people already have. Um, and so I think that's changed my positionality as a leader. Well, I'm not a pastor anymore. Um, yeah, I, you know, like it's changed my thinking about um, where the church positions itself and the way in which the church can be. And it's allowed me to think beyond the walls of the church in a different way. Not, not just in a kind of a you know, community ministries type way, but in a, in a kind of way that links to my identity as Māori. And um, one of the, I was sharing with someone yesterday, one of the saddest things for me at the moment is the more I press into my whakapapa, the less at home I feel in this kind of context. And I've been 20 years a pastor, a Baptist pastor. And there's something I think um, that we need to reflect and think about as a denomination. Um, keeping it real, I think how my life has changed since studying couples. I have a lot of friends and people calling me, telling me about their deep disappointments in their relationships. <laughs> yeah, which is great. So people feel like they can come talk to me about all the um, issues they're having, which I really like listening to. I think it's important to be able to create safe spaces for people to talk about that. Fantastic. But if you want to see counselors, see my mom. She's an actual. There it is. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Research Podcast. If you liked what you heard, why don't you go ahead and share this recording with a local faith community or send it to a church leader you think might be interested in the podcast? You can find out more about what we do at baptistresearch.org.nz. Thanks for listening. Kakite anō.